Welcome to A State of Mind. This is Julian Ocean. I am really excited about today's episode. I spend a lot of time working on each one of these, really wanting to share with you guys the highest quality work that I can. And this conversation is one that I have been wanting to have on the podcast here for a long time. And in some ways, uh, one that I've been preparing for, you know, almost my entire adult life. I am speaking with Dr. Phil Stanley. He was a professor of mine at Naropa University when I was earning a master's in Buddhist studies. Phil is a really dedicated scholar, practitioner, and translator of the Buddhist traditions. He is the head of the Wisdom Traditions Department at Naropa University, formerly called Religious Studies Department. And he is a founding member and dean of Natartha Institute for Advanced Buddhist Studies, where I also earned a degree, I believe in 2010. Seems like a long time ago now. And he is the vice chair of the International Association of Buddhist Universities. And he earned his PhD at UVA, studying under the great scholar Jeffrey Hopkins. We discuss a number of interesting topics, including the role of the guru and teacher in the Buddhist traditions, and um, talk about some of the scandals that have gone on in the Shambhala Buddhist community and in others. And he offers some really interesting insights on who the teacher is and their role. He also shares some really practical uh, teachings from the Buddhist traditions that we can begin to apply uh, in your experience right now. And one of those is around the topic of selflessness. This is one of the kind of hallmarks of Buddhist philosophy, and it's not so easy to understand. And um, one way to begin to understand this is that it's not so much about what is uh, truth or reality as much as it is about what is not, and that there's certain ideas, assumptions that we tend to have about ourselves that when examined turn out not to be true. And there are three qualities we tend to assume that ourselves personally and objects in the world have. And these are the qualities of permanence, lasting moment to moment, of independence, not depending upon other things, and of singularity, being one thing, not many. So this is the classic kind of Buddhist approach of inquiry, examining our own experience and what we see in the world and seeing if these qualities can be found or not. And we can really inquire in this way into any phenomena. For example, music. I'm going to play for you guys in a moment a song I improvised on guitar, kind of spontaneously made up in the moment. And music can reveal the meaning of selflessness in that a song is composed up of many different notes and sounds. It's not one singular thing, even though we refer to a song as such. And the difference between a major and a minor chord is just the relationship between the notes. It's not found in any one particular note itself. Each note is a vibration, not a solid, independent thing. And in order for a sound to exist, it must be heard. And this hearing depends upon vibrations moving through space to produce an experience in consciousness. Take away any of these parts and there is no sound. In order for everything in your experience to exist, just the way it does right now, everything else in existence 
has to exist just the way it does right now as well. And so, without further ado, I bring you Dr. Phil Stanley. podcast oh a pleasure to be here and i'm i guess i'm curious to hear a little bit about your your life like i don't know that much about your background but how did you come to be so interested in buddhism and to take that on as your path academically and professionally hmm. well uh these specific events that um at which i really began being engaged in buddhism occurred when uh, my brother told me about uh, the first session of Naropa University in 1974, and I oh, wow. decided to go to that. And uh, uh, in that uh, summer, I st became a student of Trungpa Rinpoche. Uh, but leading up to that, I was clearly looking for you know, something, uh, I guess in hindsight you'd say, uh, was looking for a spiritual path. Um, and this was, uh, I think, a long process. I remember... As a young child, uh, my father got transferred to Australia in the third grade I was, and um, mm. it was, I began, I think, uh, having more awareness of, um, we would go back and forth every year between Australia and America, and, and experiencing different cultures, and also how people treated each other, and becoming more aware of my, my own mental states. I think at a fairly early age, I started becoming uh, fairly... Uh, attuned to that there's a fair amount of suffering going on. Yeah. And uh, I sort of took a more inward turn as I mm. went into junior high and high school. So I became more and more acutely aware of, you know, that there was a great deal of suffering in the world. And I was really looking for something to make sense of that. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Isn't the, the word that would get translated as Buddhists in the Tibetan language means like inner or looking inward? Something like that. Um, uh, which word like, again? Sorry. Like, there's some word, and instead of the word, like, we have the word Buddhist. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, Tibetan the Tibetan word uh, for a Buddhist is uh, Nangpa. Uh, uh, it means inside or someone within. Okay. It also seems like it can mean, like, someone who's looking within. Oh, definitely. That's the, that's the orientation of Buddhism. That um, There's a deep correlation between uh, looking inward and developing understanding of yourself, how you produce suffering, and also how you produce mental states of well-being and, mm -hmm. and outward compassion towards others. The more you understand your own mental state and the processes that go on there, the more you understand others when people are being really neurotic and aggressive or arrogant towards you, jealous, whatever, um, you begin to understand the sort of suffering they're going through in this unnecessary process. So you have this sort of natural longing to be of help to them instead of being pissed off at them, angry mm. at them for being neurotic, unjustly <laughs> treating you, um, which is a fair, an understandable reaction, but it's not that skillful. And you can learn to actually experience compassion towards difficult people. Yeah. So that, that's someone who is being difficult, causing problems, for other people, it's often suffering themselves. Is that 
absolutely. And yeah, and you you have to understand how you cause suffering for yourself and for others. Right. You know that that self knowledge is the is a real um, deep basis for having compassion for others. Mm. Yeah, so, absolutely. And I think it's the basis of a lot of you know therapy as well. Mm-hmm. Having more insight and awareness of yourself and the processes that that is going on. Um, yeah, and there's a there's a basic orientation in the Buddhist tradition that you know all beings have the capacity for enlightenment. So there's this basic view that human nature is this goodness to it, but it can it's you could also talk about that goodness as uh, a sensitivity and vulnerability, and mm-hmm. some people view that as a flaw, as a problem, and they get all neurotic. So one way of talking about this is that both samsara and nirvana co-emerge. It, there's this basic ground of goodness, but it can mm. be misunderstood, and and people get very neurotic and defend themselves. They think their sensitivity is a flaw, something to protect. Because mm. it can be, it's painful to be sensitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, a word that uh, Trungpa Rinpoche used was a heart of genuine sadness. When you start seeing the world more clearly, there is this deep sort of sadness of your heart, you know, feeling the pain of the world. But that's not con- con- viewed as a flaw, quite the opposite, that that's the basis for compassionate action. Also kindness to yourself, once you begin to clue into that. Yeah. yeah. The sensitivity, um, and that's Buddha nature, right? What you're talking about? Yes, that's a more traditional Buddhist language for that, Buddha nature. Yeah, I mean, all Buddhist traditions have this view that a person, all beings, you know, can become enlightened. The term Buddha nature uh, is from the Mahayana tradition, the great vehicle tradition. It doesn't right. occur in the Theravadan tradition, but the Theravadan tradition too, you know, all the schools of foundational Buddhism have this same view that all beings have this capacity, but you have to exert yourself. You have mm. to, you know, realize it. Right. So the, the earlier schools of Buddhism, the Hinayana or Theravadan, which is the surviving tradition that still practices it, they didn't have the term or idea of Buddha nature exactly. But there's still the idea that we can all suffer, that we can all practice the path eventually and, and achieve some insight and liberation. Right, yes. What, what about this, the idea of Buddha nature? Like, what, how, what do you have to say about that? Like, what do you think about it? Well, the... Um I mean, it's best understood as an experiential, um, a, a word for an experiential state, or um, that we, a capacity that we have, um, a quality. The the state of realization in the Buddhist tradition, you know, it always teaches selflessness that there is no mm-hmm. permanent self, and that we're dynamic beings. Uh, you know, our body is changing constantly. The you know bones, all the cells change every seven years, you know, even the bones, you know. Uh, but the mind, moment to moment, you know, I'm sitting here looking out in the room and the uh, visual experience I have is arising codependently with the objects in the room. I don't have a separate consciousness. It's not independent of that. It all mm-hmm. arises in this web of interdependent causality. So mind is also understood as being dynamic this way. Mm-hmm. But if you undo the negative patterns, there's this quality that emerges. It's considered a natural quality of you know luminosity and a natural um, caring for the world, mm-hmm. caring for others. Uh, but you don't have to use the language of permanence about that. It's the removal of the sort of trying to cling to identities as stable and cling to 
structures in your life is stable, you know, relationships, jobs. You think, you know, try to build an identity around this. And, and from the Buddhist point of view, it's all dynamic. It's not, there's no stability and all that. But if you stop neurotically trying to create the illusion of security, the qualities that emerge are this luminosity and compassion. And you don't have to use the language of permanence about that. Mm. Those arise because of the absence of trying to cling to stability. Um, so right. It's a classic Buddhist view. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate that. So, I mean, you really need to have an understanding of what's meant by non-self, the teachings on non-self. And that's something that I've come back to again and again. And it's always been very, I really, you know, I experience it as healing and insightful. And it's always true and just kind of remind myself. And there's like the three aspects of non-self that I try to remember, which is that it's where things are changing. So we're not permanent. And then we're existing in relationship with other things. So it's, we're not totally separate and independent. Yeah, so this selflessness... Oh, not uh, singular. Singular, yeah. 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 The um, given dependent origination that there's this vast um, co-arising of this you know, vast universe, the teaching on selflessness or emptiness, the, Mah- the Mahayana uses emptiness a lot, is not a nihil- is emphatically not a nihilistic statement. It's you have this vivid moment to moment arising of appearances. There's no way to negate that that's occurring. But it's understood that we profoundly misunderstand the nature of those appearances. Mm. You know, like the the glass of water sitting here beside me. Uh, in Colorado, it's very dry, and it's actively evaporating right now. <laughs> you know, it, and the temperature in the room is always changing. The temperature of the glass it's expanding as it gets slightly warmer. Yeah. It's just all really dynamic, and all of it will become something else. You know, this glass will break, and it'll, right. you know, who knows where it'll end up. And so everything is currently manifesting with certain qualities, but that's not it, permanent qualities. It will become all sorts of things. So. Right you know, as it goes into the future. So it's not a nihilistic thing. It's a more liberating thing in the sense of you don't have to fight with your projections and your desire for stability. There's this more mm. dynamic interplay with, with what's arising. Right. I think it should yeah. be an acceptance and a scene of things as they are. Right, right. And like with the example of the glass, uh, like can just in terms of conventionally speaking, we say there's a glass there. Can you hand me, you know, a glass of water? But if you analyze it if you look at it there's a top and there's a bottom and there's the sides and there's all the little molecules it's made up of so it's not really one singular thing right it's um like the glass the piece of glass at the top and the piece of glass at the bottom are currently sort of causally interconnected but there's no eternal integral connection between the top and bottom of the glass when it breaks they'll go off you know uh one piece of glass might get crushed and ground down and go into water and get uh, you know, a dog might drink it and it becomes sort of bo- part of the body of a dog and another might be you know incinerated just completely high temperature and then it becomes all sorts of other chemicals that weren't the compound of the glass so right. so the elements that are currently hanging out they're like hanging out temporarily uh, as if they were a glass and mm. it's fine to use the term glass it's useful very useful to us but there's nothing intrinsically that makes it a glass. You know, I'd like to talk about, it's like you have five people at a crowded bus station or, who are waiting for a bus. That's the glass. It's like <laughs> these five guys hanging out together. They're, they're hanging out together. They get on the bus. They go to, you know, from Chicago to St. Louis or something. But when they get off the bus, they just scatter to who knows where. One of them right. may go to Florida or whatever it is. That's like the elements in the glass. They're, they're currently hanging out in a bus, you know. 
Um, but the future, who knows? It's going to go all over the place. So. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to start to think about that and see the world that way. And um, but the, I mean, part of the point of that is to like let go of our holding on to things as being a certain way. Mm -hmm. But then another point of that is like there's no essence to the glass, so to speak. There's not like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, like if you see an apple, there's not like an essence of apple mm -hmm. according to this way of looking at the world. Well, the when you interact with the the apple. You know, you're looking at it. Your eye consciousness, as we were talking about earlier, arises independence upon the characteristics of the apple. So there's something happening there, like the apple might be sitting beside a lemon. You know, and you very right. much would, might prefer eating the apple to a lemon. You know, <laughs> um, and so it's on one hand, you you can't say that the uh, lemon and the apple are the same. You know, they clearly seem different. But this type of discussion is saying the apple is really a, a, a dynamic thing that you're interacting with. And wait a week. In Colorado, it'll become desiccated, dry thing. In Louisiana, it'll become moldy mush. You know, right. it's you know what it is is not stable. So, but it's still distinct from the lemon in mm. this present moment. So, mm. yeah, it's can't say they're the same. You can't say that, right? But in terms of talking about things having an essence, Buddha nature can be thought of as an essence of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a conscious creature. And then there is a distinction made between like something like an apple and like a dog or a human mm -hmm, being or mm -hmm, a cat that mm -hmm. has consciousness, right? Right. Well, that's why I suggested that in, in thinking about trying to understand what Buddha nature means, that it's, it's helpful to think of it in terms of, a, it's, a, it's a statement about, it's a term referring to experience, mm. you know, dynamic experience, that the, that the experience of Buddha nature is this open, uh, sensitive and insightful, compassionate state of mind that's dynamic, mm. and that only emerges if it's not neurotically trying to cling to some fixated identity. Right. So, Buddha nature is not talking about some sort of solid entity that's sort of in your heart or something. It's, <laughs> it's more the intrinsic to the dynamic nature of the quality of mind that mm. will shine forth if you don't use your mind to create these sort of diluted uh, right. states of mind. So it's in intrinsic to like an intrinsic quality of mind or part of mind or mm -hmm. essence of mind or. Mm -hmm. it, well, it might be helpful to talk about how con you know how does conceptuality work, mm. you know what's the relationship between a concept and its referent object? We were talking about the glass before, yeah. so yeah. If I say glass, that's a first off you're hearing a sound, right. <laughs> you know, and then your mind parses that and says, oh, that's a word that mm. has meaning. And uh, the actual sound glass doesn't have that meaning. That's, right. that's agreed upon by well, society. We're so, we're so primed to picking up language mm -hmm. that if you're an English-speaking you know, American person, you hear the glass or apple, it's like so quick, it's so automatic. Right. In, in fact, in, um, uh, in the tradition of epistemology, to use the Western term, which is the study of how we know, how do we know things. Mm. In um, uh, Sanskrit, it's pramana, in Tibetan, it's... Mm. Sema, um, there's a real interest in, in describing how conceptuality works, how valid is it, is, if it were. And, and basically, the, the Buddhist tradition is, is what's called nominal. They're nominalistic about language. That <clears throat> uh, in Tibetan, you, you call an orange, you know, we say orange, they, yeah. they call it saluma. And, yeah, and those sounds, you know, they're not oranges. <laughs> you know, 
Um, but there's a distinction made between the term, uh, you know, we have a general idea of, like if I told you Tsaluma without telling you an orange, you'd have an idea, oh, that's a word. I've been told right. that's a word. So you have what's called a word, a term generality, which doesn't have any meaning for you yet. Mm. And then there's a meaning generality, then I tell you what it's like, or I show mm. you an orange, or I tell you it's like the English thing, orange. Then you have this meaning that you've come to associate with the English term orange, and you can connect it to the Tibetan term generality. So uh, it's said that like uh, babies can have term generality, I mean meaning generalities. You know, like when they see that white bottle of milk come, come towards them, they don't have a label for it, but they know what it is. Right. They That's interpret their visual image. They see that and they attach a meaning to it. Yeah, so they said there's this meaning generality. They have a way of, it's a form of conceptuality that doesn't have language on it yet. Oh, interesting. And so they, they understand a lot about their world. They start figuring things out. They, right. they begin to recognize what water is and how it differs from milk. Or, or they love blueberries, you know, but they don't have the words for it. Mm. And then as, an, you know, as you grow up, you start linking the term generality with the meaning generality. Right, and they become very fused together. Yeah, but both of those are still conceptual. Mm. Like if you think orange, I love oranges, right, or tangerines. The, uh, the term, concept orange, what's the relationship between the concept orange and the actual experience of eating an orange? Mm. You know, what's the relationship between those two? I guess uh, the concept could help you to have the experience. Well, you could certainly use it to go buy an orange, right. get your, you know, someone to buy an orange for you and bring about it home. The experience. Yeah, but the actual experience of an orange is this like vividly intense thing. If if you have a good orange, you know, you can <laughs> also be very disappointed. So concepts <laughs> right. get involved in expectations and disappointment and lead to anger and all sorts of things if they're not met. So you have a concept, I love oranges, get me an orange, it looks like a good orange and then you eat it and it's terrible. It's like dry pulp or something. Right. <laughs> or bland. You know, it's juicy, but bland. You know? right. So it turns out that every orange is like uniquely what it is. Mm. You know, that they're, they're, it's, this is called a specifically characterized phenomenon phenomena right. in, the, in the Pramana tradition, that each orange is actually not the same. You know, the shape, the coloring of it, there's all these different variations. Mm. It's the intensity of sweetness or sour or whatever it it's is. It's a unique thing. It's, and we have the category orange and we kind of think or imagine they're all the same, but the actuality is they're all quite unique. Right. So this is a fundamental quality of conceptuality from the Buddhist point of view, that it's only an approximation at best. Mm. You know, that uh, the orange could be, um, you know, extremely varied in how it actually tastes, how mushy, how firm, and right. so forth and so on, how juicy, you know, all these things. It's like there's an infinite variety among all the oranges. It's useful to have a, a label orange, but that can't possibly uh, communicate all that variation. So yeah. this is a basic feature of conceptuality from this point of view. It's, it's useful, but it's just at best approximation, and unfortunately at worst, it can be utterly non-existent. We have concepts or things mm. that don't exist, mm. but we deeply, and we deeply believe in them. Mm. I mean, think of um, you know, ideologies of uh, you know, repressive systems. You know, mm. Part of their method is to use language to categorize people and to valorize one group as intrinsically inferior, bad, evil, deserving of poverty or whatever it is. Right. And it's all, it's all a conceptual use of conceptuality right. to label in that way. And 
right. attach meanings to those labels. And then right. So this attributing of inferiority and superiority from a Buddhist point of view is a complete fabrication. It's mm. utterly non-existent to say, you know, whites are superior. That that quality of superiority is utterly non-existent. Now there are observable features. This is there's a, there's a key difference between we can project qualities that don't exist onto an object, and then we can see qualities that do exist. You know, skin right. color, you know, color of hair, body type, all sorts of things. Um, you know, that are observable differences between you know groups. <laughs> um, but. The, the imputation then of further qualities like inferiority and superiority based onto that <clears throat> are considered to be utter fabrications. And we vividly think they really exist. When you see a person of a different ethnic group and you're prejudiced, just as surely as you see these differences in qualities, the skin color, the hair, or style, whatever it is, you viscerally feel that the quality of inferiority you projected, you're experiencing that. You think you're experiencing that. Yeah, so it's all, it's a conceptual imputation, and then it becomes tied in with a lot of emotionality. And then it's like, mm -hmm. once you've been kind of steeped in that tea, so to speak, you know, once you're used to that, the emotionality can arise even when you're trying to change your conscious thoughts about it, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I would imagine for maybe like, um, what would an example be? Maybe Israel and Palestine, if they have a lot of, if you grew up in a family that had a lot of animosity, there would just be this deep emotionality that would be created by these concepts, but then it becomes like a deeper level. Mm -hmm. and so you could change your surface level thinking and you would still have to kind of, still have this in you, so to speak. Yeah, the uh, it becomes so embedded in you that it just flies out of you. You know, your emotions really give. It's like concepts are fairly are fairly tenuous, fairly um, simplistic. Mm. But emotions, if you attach emotions to them, it gives them a visceralness and a believability that strengthens your belief in the concept. Yeah. So it's, it becomes, the emotions and the concepts become deeply intertwined. Yeah, I mean, it's just so fascinating for me to think about, like as a therapist, I've seen it myself and with clients, like you can um, have like a deep, strong emotional reaction around something, even while conceptually you're thinking that you understand it, you have insight, you're ready to let it go, but the emotion is still there. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so it can be hard to undo just the conceptual understanding. It starts dawning on you. Right. You know, there's all these, uh, you see movies sometimes of people who are prejudiced and then they get into situations where they're dependent on this group they're prejudiced against. And, right. And they experience acts of kindness, you know, despite your, you know, your mental state of obvious prejudice <laughs> against them. <laughs> but you desperately need their help and they help you. And then you get this sort of life-changing uh, realization that, oh, mm. my projections on this are just completely wrong. But that doesn't just end the story because you have deeply rooted patterns. Right. So you have to really work at that. You have to continue to work at it. Yeah. Um, to kind of take it in another direction, one of the most annoying and illogical emotions we feel as humans, I think, is jealousy. Mm. It's like someone else you know, maybe a friend, maybe they get a raise or a new car or they're going to get married or whatever it is. Something good has happened for mm -hmm, them. Mm -hmm. And our initial reaction so often is to feel jealous rather than to... So in, like a practice for me that's been really helpful is to try to feel joy in their joy, mm -hmm. feel happiness in their happiness. Mm -hmm. And like their happiness doesn't 
diminish or take away from my experience at all. Why, why is there this? But there's like this gut reaction of jealousy we often feel. And mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's an interesting one to think about. And we can conceptually, like I can conceptually understand that, and yet I'll still feel that emotion. Yeah, again, if you've really cultivated that. I mean, the good news is if you've strengthened it and cultivated a negative, painful state of mind like jealousy over time, the very fact that you strengthen it in development also means you can undo it. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a created thing. Right. Well, I guess in the Buddhist understanding that it's uh, karma and it's been created over lifetimes. And mm. But another way to look at it from a more scientific point of view would be evolution. Mm -hmm. And we've evolved mm -hmm. to have some of these feelings and mm -hmm. emotional reactions and they may not be logical and they may make our lives less enjoyable or miserable at times, but there's mm -hmm. some evolutionary reason. Mm -hmm. How do you reconcile those or how do you think about that? Yeah, that's an area that um, I could learn more about. Um, I'm not sure quite what to say. Um, one thing I can say is uh, emotions, even when they're painful and lead to unskillful action, often have insight in them. Right, absolutely. And, um, and in fact, we use the fact that we, we, we know that we're having insight. Like you, you, you're looking into this other person's, how they're treating you, and it's unreasonable, and they're clearly just habitually do this to everyone, and it feels really gratuitous. And, um, that that's, you're seeing something. That's, that's insight. But the difficulty is we use that to justify then um, unskillful mental states and unskillful actions on our part against that person. Mm. And uh, but we have to start from where we are. So you can't just even if you begin to clue into how you're reacting in a way that's causing harm both to yourself. I mean, the st the state of jealousy is painful. Right. So you're causing pain for yourself, and right, you're causing your own suffering. Right, and you're likely doing things that are uh, not skillful with the other person too. So, and then you sh and then you spread that out to other people. Right, but the way forward um, is you can't just stop that. That sort of insight, just as we were talking earlier, you have these patterns and these emotions that you just can't turn off. Um, so the way forward is is you really need to develop you know some compassion for yourself. That why are you so uh, poverty-stricken to have this sort of jealous attitude. You know, it's mm -hmm. like if you're jealous of someone, say they um, are doing really well in school, you were a graduate student with me. Yeah. Um, well, instead of putting your energy into that, why don't you just put your energy into being a good student? <laughs> you know? be a useful use of the energy. And, then, yeah. and, and that could be a joyful process. I mean, my view of study is that, uh, it, you know, it's really... It, it could really feel inspiring and beneficial and you have a sort of passion for it. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of this, I, if I don't do well, I can't feel good about myself. So I have to stress myself out and work late and I'm feeling right. terrible and stressed out, but I'm going to do well and then I can feel good. You know, that whole pattern is painful and you could just flip it and say, well, I think we learned that growing up. We learned to push ourselves real hard and that I think it starts when like, well-intentioned parents or teachers give you a little treat for doing a good job <laughs> and then you're like I don't deserve anything good unless I do this and it can develop into this really kind of pathological mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. it's hard to just relax and enjoy life mm -hmm. because you're always having to push yourself mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, there can be involved the uncertainty insecurity about one's own abilities one's talents you know doubts and self-criticisms but there's a, just a different way of flipping that whole thing, that uh, allowing yourself to really appreciate. You know, humans are just amazing in their ability to learn. And we have differences in, you know, how 
skilled we are at, say, musician or math or whatever. There are differences right. between us. But yeah. even within that, uh, one could enjoy that one has an ability to do it. You know, you may not be as good as math as this other person in the class with you or whatever it is. But uh, I, I loved math and I really enjoyed it. I just figured out at some point that it's sort of fun. Like algebra was really fun. It was like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so to enjoy things for their own sake instead of this comparing game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But and then if you have this sort of passion, then you can really exert yourself. You, you know, you can allow yourself to go. I'm going to really work hard at this, mm. not because you you uh, you know you can only feel good about yourself if you do well. But from the point of view is I enjoy this, and then then you would do well. You know, right. I say grades in, in school are an outcome of you know passion and engagement rather than the goal. You know, if you yeah. really throw yourself into it, the grades will be better. You know, so, yeah. yeah. You know, one place in my life where I've really felt this is with this podcast. Like it's been a labor of love, but mm-hmm. I've really deep. It's been deeply rewarding for me, mm-hmm. and it's um, mm-hmm. intrinsically valuable. So even if no one else listened to it, like mm-hmm. just the process of doing it has been so rewarding and the fact mm-hmm. that people do listen to it makes it that much better mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to share something positive with the world yeah and it, it, this attitude applies to almost anything you know the thing mm-hmm. about washing dishes or whatever it is you yeah know, you know just the present momentness of doing that and and the enjoyment of having clean dishes again and you know <laughs> you don't have to sort of resent it you know your life begins when you finish something like when i finish dish washing i can my life right. can be fun you know that's you're robbing yourself basically. that's a total conceptual <laughs> overlay if you yeah. can actually just pay attention to the experience mm-hmm. of washing dishes with the warm mm-hmm. water and mm-hmm. the soap and mm-hmm. there's not it's it can be fun yeah, yeah and water is an amazing thing just watch water you know that's why people go sit by streams and rivers you know right like, the sound of it <laughs> yeah water is amazing yeah. i was uh really fortunate in my life one of the first buddhist teachers i connected with was Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm-hmm. and uh when i was um undergrad at university of north carolina at chapel hill there was like this spring alternative spring break trip to his monastery in uh, California. Mm. And I went there and it was kind of partly a service trip, but we got to we got to be there for like I think 5 or 6 days and he talked a lot about washing dishes <laughs> <laughs> and about eating chewing one bite at a time and not reaching for the next bite until you finished the bite you already had in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking about that the other day and like Man, this is like 15 years ago, and I'm still. <laughs> how how difficult that is to slow down mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and actually pay attention. Yeah, well, this is sort of one of the uh, fundamental quality of meditation. I mean, there's there's several aspects to this. On one side, meditation is this mirror for your present state of mind, and mm. meditation is uh, sort of being honest with yourself. If, if your state of mind is painful, you know, you can be present and really acknowledging that and learn from that. Mm. But on the other side, um, this present moment simplicity emerges that this is another you know major dimension of meditation that you can just and it can dawn on you you know you could have had a week of you know if you're practicing daily and it feels like storms are happening all the time mm-hmm. and then you experience this for no apparent reason the sense of just present simplicity well-being mm. clarity and it's being present in this simple way with the present moment so that quality a sense of well-being and presentness yeah. is always available to well, that's, you. That's amazing. That's actually super extraordinary mm-hmm. that there's a quality of well-being, I think, intrinsic to our consciousness or mm-hmm. being that can arise for no particular reason, just mm-hmm. like the sun can shine in the sky. Like It doesn't mm-hmm. need a reason to do that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Trungpa uh, uh, used the word ordinary magic for this, yeah. you know, or art in everyday life, you know, that everyday life can, you can discover this quality. Just, ordinariness. Yeah, just yeah. ordinariness. And even in Tantra, they use the term or, uh, ordinary, uh, uh, tamagashi shape, ordinary mind. 
right. as the highest mind. It's like you think you're looking for some high special thing. <laughs> By the way, it's right here. You know? well, that's the paradox of a lot of Buddhist practice and teachings is that it's already here and we have to just uncover it and recognize it. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What do you think? I mean, I wonder, We our culture is so driven and uh, consumerist and materialist, but we're also like extremely hardworking people in general. And we're mm -hmm. um, just this huge effort to try to achieve things and make a name for yourself and make your mark in the world and it seems like the buddhist traditions and cultures that have been deeply influenced by buddhism take a very different approach and yet i don't see them as just sitting around doing nothing even though that could be an interpretation you know what i'm saying like you, right, could, yeah. you could get buddhist teachings and meditate and and just oh i can just find happiness within i don't need to worry about changing the external world and you could just kind of be like a bump on a log well, it's it's not that you don't worry about not changing, you know, changing the world. It's mm. it's that 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 um, e e exertion to help the world comes from a very different place. Mm. That it comes from that sense of well-being. The more you get in touch with that simplicity, the more you see the um, that the suffering of others and that the world creates is is unnecessary. That this quality is available to everyone. And so there's this natural longing to uh, help, to exert yourself. So it's like it was, we were talking earlier about, it. you know, when you're studying, if you allow yourself to really love what you're studying, it automatically brings tremendous exertion. That you really exert yourself. So you don't need the arrogant, aggressive, ambitious motivation mm. to really throw yourself into something. So I think many activists in the world know what, I'm, what we're talking about here. Yeah. You know, that they feel inspired to help. It's not about money. Now, it could have an edge of aggression and ambition, but you, you don't need to do that. that. If you have a tremendous sensitivity to the world and care for it, then you really could be deeply motivated to act, to help. Right. Yeah. So it's not a, a passivity, it's not the result of this type of simplicity. Yeah. I'm just kind of reflecting on my own life, and I spent a, you know, my, a decent amount of time meditating, especially in my 20s. And I, you know, when I knew you had you as a teacher, I got the master's in Buddhist studies at Europa, And so there was like effort I was putting into it. And then there, there were times where it, when I would be on a meditation retreat, and like things would be very peaceful and blissful, even. and letting go of worrying about the past, letting go of worrying about the future, just being present. And then there is a return and a re-engagement with the world, and at times a kind of despair of like, hmm, I could have been getting a doctorate or you know, becoming a medical doctor or a lawyer or mm -hmm. starting a business or a family. So I think there, I mean, there is a kind of a cost to doing things like that. And I also believe in them and they can be really beneficial, but I, I've, and I've talked with people who have done like, for example, three and a half year retreats and it's very intensive and they're it's difficult and it's not easy and mm -hmm. and then there's not a lot of in our society there's not a lot of reward or recognition of that effort that they put in that time that they put in and so and i think in traditionally in traditional buddhist societies like tibet for example or maybe in japan with the zen or you know different countries like that there was this there was this recognition of the value of that kind of practice mm -hmm. and um i think that that's like a really important thing that our culture kind of lacks. We don't always see that value. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe for good reason. Maybe mm -hmm. sometimes that becomes too much and we can't have everyone just meditating all the time. But I think if you experience the, the point of meditation, you see the value in it. Mm -hmm. Well, people um, have very different qualities and, and ways of manifesting. So it's not that everybody has to be, you know, um, 
you know, professional uh, activist, you know, right. that, you know, like, um, I love to teach. And, um, you know, I, did, I, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll go to a rally or something, but that's generally what I don't, I'm not, that's not what I'm doing. I'm in the classroom and um, teaching people and trying to help them. We, we get uh, a portion of our students at Naropa University are second career people. They've had a whole professional career. They've been an engineer, right. a manager at Pepsi or something, one of our recent <laughs> students, uh, a fund manager, you know, a financial fund manager. Yeah. So, and uh, they become unsatisfied with their life. And they've often they've started practicing, studying some Buddhism, whatever it is. And they make this remarkable decision to leave that mm. and and to come get a, a graduate degree at Naropa in Buddhist <laughs> studies, you know, and uh, it's there's this sort of intuition that they could do something more useful, beneficial with their life, and they're not quite sure usually what that will be. Right. But they need to go through a personal process of really developing themselves, developing more skill with their own state of mind and more skill than with others, and that that will lead to some sort of activity that will be beneficial. Yeah. And I just uh, I respect these students. It's just uh, remarkable that they have this sort of courage and vision that they really want to change themselves and be and that they trust that they'll be able to then make a more of a contribution to the world than they could otherwise. Yeah, and I think that's beautiful. And I think one way to to understand it is if we understand that our consciousness our mind is is more primary and if we change our mind on a fundamental level that will change our mm -hmm, life mm -hmm. that will change the way we show up in relationship that will change our motivation mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. that's all coming from working with our mind mm -hmm. yeah in the the buddhist tradition they talk about um, if you amass the causes there will be results Oh, nice. <laughs> you know, it, it, you know, if you go around insulting people and you're arrogant <laughs> and you lie and you steal, whatever, there are going to be results, right? But if you do the opposite, you know, really work on developing, um, you know, self-awareness and kindness towards yourself and skillful means, caring for others, and uh, or if you study a lot about psychology, like Buddhist psychology mm. and how the mind works, and then that that gives you, or you study Tibetan language, we you know teach Tibetan and Sanskrit. Um, and you might think, well, I'm going to go get a PhD in Buddhist studies or something. Well, who knows where it's going to lead? It, right. it, but if you amass all these causes, um, they will lead to a result. They'll open up possibilities. Um, so, you know, we have students who become the head of research for Tsadra Foundation. We have one student who, you know, had his... Um, studied Tibetan and Sanskrit and so forth. Excellent student, could have gone on to a PhD. And the next thing you know, he's running this research center and supporting a bunch of senior translators. You know, That's you just, cool. another uh, person becomes, you know, started working for Shambhala Publications and editing and, yeah. you know, studied Tibetan again, but who would have guessed that it just opens up doors and he's very happy to be, be doing that. So, yeah. If you do work on yourself in a really intense way, it will lead to something. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, one thing I've noticed in myself and working with other people is there often is, and I think on some level there always is, this deep desire to make a positive difference in the world. Like people really want to do good things. They really want to help. They really want to be compassionate. And then there's a real journey, and it can be a struggle at times to like, how is that going to manifest and show up for you individually? And how, yeah, different people are going to have different skills to offer. But there's that, to me, that's connected with the Buddha nature. There's this underlying desire to make the world a better place, make mm -hmm. yourself a better place. Mm -hmm. I think that's really present within us and I think it gets covered mm -hmm. up or we forget about it. But mm -hmm. if you talk to someone and you go deep, what do you want? What do you want? It's there. Yeah. Well, you have to uh, work out the economics of your life, but uh, that does not mean that economics are the prime motivator, that human happiness is, um, 
you know, uh, having enough, you know, resources is important, but it doesn't make a person happy to have just a tremendous amount of wealth. That's not why why this right. works. So, a lot of people are sort of, I think, trying to find a way to have a meaningful life that, you know, that's economically makes sense, but still, it's more uh, fulfilling and more beneficial. It's yeah. sort of yearning to find something. Yeah, we we definitely do have economic pressure on us, and I think um, I've studied um, eudaimonia, genuine happiness, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and for sure, like just material well-being doesn't lead to genuine happiness and mm-hmm. this deeper sense of purpose and meaning. Mm-hmm. But I think part of what's going on is that when you are economically rewarded for something, it's more than just the money. It's more than just the things that money can buy. It's a it's an approval from society, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's like a, mm-hmm. it's a reward for a job well done. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think that's actually really powerful, and it's hard mm-hmm. to just give that up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, sometimes it's a job well done in causing harm. <laughs> sometimes it is. <laughs> you know, you're, you're successful at you know, uh, dubious things. Uh, but yes, it's a powerful thing to... Um, I mean to enjoy what you do and to feel you're you're good at it. It's a very uh, you know it's a very satisfying sort of thing. Yeah. But there can be uh, real harm that's going on when you're doing that. This idea of right livelihood, of finding a livelihood right. that you know supports you in, in a good way, um, that contributes and doesn't hurt others. That's a real emphasis. And a lot of things can be done this way. You know that many many things, many jobs can be done ethically. Can be done you know spiritually, if you will. Yeah. Or not, even the same job. You know, you can be a shoe salesman and you could be manipulative, lying, deceptive, or you could be very supportive, straightforward, helpful, honest, you know? Right. Well, then to take it another level, what about the people that make the shoes and how mm-hmm. the shoes get mm-hmm. there? And- yeah. Well, there's all sorts of uh, structural economic issues about, you know, abusing people, you know, the, the issues of sweat factories in Asia. It's almost impossible to extract yourself from some of that, you know. Right, we're also connected with this matrix of economic realities that are often really destructive. I I was surprised. I just read uh, there's an online uh, company that... uh sells furniture, and they just found out that their company sold a bunch of beds to immigration, uh, homeland security for the border people, oh, and they, they all walked out in protest for a day. <laughs> well, they need to sleep, too. I don't know. <laughs> they need to sleep, too. But it's interesting. There's this dilemma that, you know, we're often involved in well, that's systems. Yeah. But I think culturally we basically ignore the where these things are coming from. Like, I don't hear about people walking out of a factory because they hear about the slave labor in China. I mean, I have an iPhone. Mm-hmm. I've heard that the conditions that mm-hmm. are making iPhones are terrible. Mm-hmm. So I'm a part of it too, but yeah. it's, hard to, it's hard to face that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the Buddhist concept of uh, samsara, of cyclic existence, which it shares with uh, the Hindu tradition um, of India, um, it basically... Um, you know, suggests that humans have this deep-seated capacity. You know, we have this these real strong habitual systems that do cause harm, and it's very hard to undo that whole thing. But the tradition, you know, sort of emphasizes, well, given that that's the case, what can one do here and now? How can one proceed from here? Mm. So the less uh, oblivious we are to that larger harm, the better. But at the same time, getting depressed and... Um, you know, sort of pessimistic is not going to help us. So there's this uh, being uplifted, this idea of uplifting and try to trying to change the world. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. You know, I once heard a, a Rinpoche, like a high Tibetan Buddhist teacher with a lot of followers, he said something about 
it actually would, would be bad if everyone started meditating because the stock market would collapse. <laughs> and so we'd have to like restructure our society more gradually in order mm-hmm, to... <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because, uh, I mean, there, over time when, uh, you know, historically Buddhism would, um, you know, become a more important factor when it would move into uh, culture and uh, have a sort of societal impact. And like if you look at China and Japan, um, as it went through several centuries of being present, that um, more grassroots movements would emerge in which they would teach a form of Buddhism, develop a form of Buddhism that was more accessible to the broader range of society. And at the same time, you had these deep, you know, committed Buddhists and Buddhist meditative scholars and things like that. You had this sort of society, you had a civilization that had different levels, different areas of engagement with Buddhism. Maybe that's a healthy way to look at it. Mm -hmm. Um, I love history. I've studied a, you know, a decent amount of Tibetan history, Chinese Mm -hmm. history, and Mm -hmm. like, I really do think that um, Tibet was a country that was so influenced uh, by Buddhism and in beautiful ways, um, Mm -hmm. but there were some negative consequences for some of that. And one of them was they didn't have uh, any kind of strong centralized government and they didn't have any kind of functioning army Mm -hmm. and they didn't have functioning relationships with other countries Mm -hmm. through World War I, through World War II. And then when the United Nations was formed, they didn't join that because they didn't have diplomats. And then when the Chinese walked in, they just collapsed. And so there's something missing there in terms of practical engagement with the world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, there's lots of reasons for that. But I think the idea of not having an army is beautiful, and I believe in world peace too, but then there's certain practical things, like if a country mm-hmm. like China comes mm-hmm. at your borders with a million-person army, you, you need to be able to stand up to that. Right, and the Dalai Lama's been very articulate that, um, you know, given the Buddhist view of karma, that karmic, what happens, you know, has some past, you have some responsibility for that, um, mm. that he doesn't blame the Chinese you know, it's not like we were blameless and you were just aggressors. That mm. he accepts that there were karmic, karmic reasons for that invasion that the Tibetans brought on themselves. So he's he does not demonize China this way. You know, I mean, obviously yeah. he's critical of a lot of aspects of China, but on this particular point, he he, he says you must accept. You know that you have some responsibility in what happened. Huh. That there are karmic consequences that are coming to fruition for the Tibetan people. That's a very interesting... Well, just, I mean, with that kind of view of karma, it's like when you're sitting, when you're meditating, you're living your life with mindfulness, you're allowing things to happen and you're kind of allowing the karma to play out and become purified. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, just it seems like that attitude can lack a certain engagement and more, you know, it's, it's not, it's a peaceful way of being, but then you don't have like the aggression. Like maybe sometimes there's a place for aggression. Yeah, well, um, it's interesting what what would the term aggression mean uh, if you really have a compassionate state of mind, you have some sort of understanding of what the situation is, uh, you know, can you decide to act in a forceful way Hmm. that, you know, you you decide that's the uh, most skillful thing to do? And the other person may well experience it as aggression, it's very threatening. But your state of mind does not necessarily have to be what we would call aggressive. Right. It could be very forceful and knowing, you know, you're trying to penetrate, you're trying to get through. You know, it's like an adult, if a child were about to run off, you know, is running towards a you know, little 
fall of you know four feet or something. Right. You might yell out in a very harsh. You if know, it's running into traffic, you would grab the child. Yeah, grab them very forcefully, or you might use a very strong voice just to catch their attention, uh, without it needing to be angry. Yeah, no, I like that. Um, the, I agree with that. I, I mean, you could call it aggression, in, you know, in certain category, but right. it's a, from a very different mental state. Right. No, it's a good distinction. I, I wish our military had more of that kind of attitude <laughs> that we can use force from a compassionate mm-hmm. intention. Mm-hmm. And maybe mm-hmm. we could use a lot less of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when you work with a teacher, a, a Buddhist teacher, that you will experience this often, that they will be at some points very forceful with you. Mm. You know, you might feel it very intimidating. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the, uh, ideally that this is coming from a, a very insightful, compassionate state from the teacher. That, I mean, teachers are in their own state of development, so it's not like a teacher is necessarily fully developed. And, right. Um, uh, but one, when one engages with a teacher, one has a, a sense of trust that, that, that they can act skillfully. I mean, there's a whole issue about... Um, you know, sort of the Me Too movement and issues about sexual abuse with teachers and students. And there's, right. there's clearly examples where a, stu- a teacher has, has, you know, caused harm. Hmm. And um, so it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking about this issue is that this doesn't mean that they didn't have a skillful teaching and insight and that they hmm. doesn't mean that they didn't help their students. You know, that, that's, that's uh, often students will say, I was benefited. Yeah. But it's like us. Sometimes we're very skillful. We're very patient, generous, kind, compassionate. Other times we really mess up. We're sort of, we hurt others. You know, we're, we're the same person. <laughs> right. And sometimes we're skillful and sometimes we're not. And that's our path. It's called the path, actually. That's how yeah. you learn. You well, know, I think it can, it can all be true. And I think it can also be true that a situation that happens between two individuals could be have compassionate motivation. Mm-hmm. But then the way it's seen by other people they might not see it that way and, and mm-hmm. they might feel suffering just based on hearing about it. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. they weren't even directly involved with it. And that's understandable. That's human too. Right. Well, this is somewhat back to the discussion of concepts later, that a person has a concept mm. that there should be no sexual relationships, you know, period. Right. And as a general rule, that's a good rule. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't cases where a very genuine beneficial relationship happened. Mm. You know, it, it's like in at universities, you know, there's an old dual relationship policy with right. students and you're not supposed to have sexual relationships. Now, of course, in the history of universities, there are relationships that happen. And and some of those were uh, a good portion of those may well have been very uh, manipulative, taking advantage of the student or whatever. But some of them could have really been deeply uh, real relationships. It's, yeah. it's like it's not a black or white thing. Right. But the university on whole is far better off saying, you just can't do it, you know. Easier to just make a rule than. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that rule is 100% accurate. Uh, but we should 100% abide by it just because of the potential for harm. So. Yeah. Well, it raises a lot of interesting questions. But just speaking more abstractly about ethics, like having mm-hmm. rules, the rules are there for a reason. But then each situation is unique, and what mm-hmm. is your underlying motivation? And there's just so many factors and things to think about. So I think of more like guidelines. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm never gonna. You know, I have the intention to never steal, but if there was, I don't know, hypothetically speaking, someone starving the dead mm-hmm. and you have to steal food for them, like things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had an interesting discussion in, uh, in an Europa classroom that um, we were talking about the, um, the issue of uh, relationships with underaged um, women. 
Oh. You know, older men with younger women. And uh, one of the students was the father of some young daughters. And yeah. he was really intensely, ferociously uh, saying, this is utterly bad. And several of the women in the classroom said, no. Oh, I had one of those. So it's really quite interesting, you know, that it was beneficial. To this day, I, I view that as beneficial. I think that's a great example. I think other cultures in the past, like ancient Greece, had uh, different understandings around things like that. And, mm. and just the, what what is natural to being human. Like if we grew up in a tribe, I think certain relationships would form and they wouldn't have these meanings that you're talking about that we attach to them. Like, oh, that's because she's this age and he's that age, that's automatically bad. Mm -hmm. That's really like an imputation we're putting on the situation. We're not talking to them. We're not asking her like, hey, what is your experience or him? Like, what mm -hmm. is going on here? Mm -hmm. But but again, at the societal level, um, there can be a lot of abuse in such, you know, this under, right. quote, underage relationships. And so society, you know, is society served by saying statutory rape is, you know, if you have sex with someone under 18. You know, that uh, for a system to work, it has to have actionable, simple, you know, these sort of rules. So you can understand why society decides such things, but it doesn't mean it's true in all cases. Right. And there's yeah. just, there's different societies we can look at. Even in Europe, I think they have different laws around things and different, yeah. it's not just a matter of changing laws. It's like, what are the societal attitudes? Because if you, ex if you are thinking that that's something really terrible, then you're going to have emotions connected with mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. if you, I don't know, I think, you know, I think in ancient Greece it was common for like some young men or boys to have an older male lover. Like, mm -hmm. And that would be an acceptable mm -hmm. thing. And so it didn't have all these like negative emotions attached to it the way that we do. Mm -hmm. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying that is, our, is the answer or something, but I'm just saying that it's helpful and interesting to like look at different cultures and what mm -hmm. this, these mm -hmm. variations and mm -hmm. then we can have more compassion for ourselves and other people maybe. Right. Well, and, and it's um, important to note that, you know, we're two males talking about something that, you know, it'd be wonderful to have, you know, <laughs> yeah. a women's voice in this, but um, this is always something to be mindful of. So. I guess my point is just that, um, I just like what you said about talking to the individuals rather than mm -hmm. a one size fits all thing and like, each situation is different. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I kind of wish that some of our laws took things like intentionality into account a little bit more. Mm -hmm, like it seems mm -hmm. like that could be more part of our legal system. Mm -hmm. Like what's the intention and what is the consequence rather than just was this black or white thing done or not done? Yeah, and I, th I think this black and white sort of uh, approach to making decisions about situations has um, got severe limitations. You know, we were talking about you know, we as individuals at times uh, are very virtuous, you know, very skillful, and other times not, you know, same person. And we have these, this, the anti sort of upped when you have teachers in a position who then do things that are harmful. So I think it's helpful to think, well, it's not just a black and white situation again. That It's well possible that they did some uh, beneficial teaching and, you know, students have benefited, and they've also caused harm. So... Um, whether they learn from their harm, you know, there's a serious issue. They, they really need to seriously examine themselves and really, really change. And a group has to figure out what they feel about them. And individuals within the group, more yeah. to the point, have to figure yeah. that out. But So I think it's good not just to demonize them. I mean, really be honest and, and they need to face up to it. And there needs to be a real process that they face face what they've done. Right. But it doesn't, doesn't make them intrinsically evil. Right. You know, they've done some real harm. but yeah. Not throughout the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And whether they can continue to function is a, a matter for, I guess, that community and them. And uh, So, yeah, I really um, appreciate you 
talking about this, I think it's a huge issue mm -hmm. with all teachers, but with Buddhist and spiritual teachers in particular, it's if it's more charged, it's more of an issue. I mean, the elephant in the room here is what's going on with Shambhala, right? Mm -hmm. Which is connected mm -hmm. with Naropa, and mm -hmm. you, mm -hmm. it sounds like your first Buddhist teacher was Jogen Trungpa, who started Shambhala, mm -hmm. and now the leader of Shambhala has been accused of some sexual misconduct, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how do we understand that? Maybe there can be a process of healing within that community, or, or maybe he needs mm -hmm. to step down. I'm not sure. Do you mm -hmm. have any more thoughts you want to share about that? Yeah. Well, I was a, a student of Trungpa Rinpoche. Um, I was uh, on the board. Uh, Trungpa had died in 1987. And um, later, I was on the board. And uh, when the Sakyang uh, took over, um, and it, it was still called Vajradhatu at that point. It wasn't called Shambhala. Yeah. Um, I, I served for him for a while. Um, uh, just I was on the board and already helping. So, um, but I didn't. You know, didn't he wasn't a personal teacher for me. You know, I wished him well. So um, I stepped down uh, to go to get a doctorate in Buddhist studies. That's oh, yeah. what I wanted to do. And um, so, you know, I had a cordial departure, wished, you know, the whole thing to go well. But um, he had not served as a teacher for me. Um, yeah. uh, so I have a sort of um, arm's length relationship to this whole process. Of course, I, I'm saddened by the whole thing. I'm deeply saddened by it. Um, uh, it seems that there were, you know, um, uh, non-virtuous action done. The reports have a sort of detailedness to them and so forth that uh, have a compelling quality. Yeah, and um, it seems like part of it is that there was uh, the whole organization, or at least his inner circle, that was supporting that. It's not just him. Mm -hmm. Like other people must have known and seen what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, it's hard to know, especially at the level of individuals. I, I really was not involved in, and um, you know, I was aware. I'd heard of drinking that he at that phase had yeah. been drinking heavily. And well, Trungpa was a great drinker too, mm -hmm. and had mm -hmm. relationships with lots of different women. Yes, so. indeed. And um, I, of course, know a great deal of them. And um, when I'm asked about this, I, I generally say um, it would be good if you could talk to some of those women. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, you know, especially as a, as a male here again, um, that uh, my knowledge, the, the women that I know, that it was a very uh, personal, you know, uh, close connection. It was not uh, so experienced as harmful. The women that you've talked to that were with Trungpa felt good about it, grateful, happy. Yes, I mean, it's not that everybody is that way. I mean, I, I hear... Having been around Trungpa himself, you know, there would be times like, it would be like sitting in a vast floating space with nothing happening. He would be there, but he, there was no sort of affirmation of your ego, you know, <laughs> just this vast space. And it could be intimidating. And, you know, we were talking yeah. about simplicity earlier. It's like he had this uh, capacity to really manifest that space where you would just... Um, entertainments and chatty chattiness and so forth was not going on. And you would experience this sort of simplicity and vastness, which could be quite daunting. So hanging around with Trungpa wasn't like hanging around in a big party. I mean, there, there could be parties, but the quality of him was like that. So he really obviously impacted you a lot, and just being around in, in his presence was, was an experience. I mm -hmm. mean, I can only imagine. I mean, I've been around some amazing teachers, so I have some sense of what you're talking mm -hmm. about. And mm -hmm. 
um, it's just cool to hear. It's cool to hear stories about meeting great Buddhist teachers or any kind of great being or teacher who can have has a certain presence and energy. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, a woman is, you know, being with him, uh, I can well imagine that that was a lot of their experience. You know, mm. the, there was this spaciousness. It wasn't just oh, let's go have sex. You know, that's just not the quality of mm. you know being around him. I mean, there's a lot of passion and precision and and, and you know insightfulness and dauntingness and all sorts of qualities. Um, yeah, it's best to talk to the individuals involved and you know, yeah. get their personal experience of it. Right. You know, again, this black and white mentality that any relationship between a teacher and student, you know, as a general norm, that's a really good norm. Mm. But again, it's like, you know, a concept of an orange. You know, every orange is different. Mm. You know, it's the same sort of problem that people want to cling to, you know, simplistic concepts and apply it as if it applies to all cases. Mm. And so, you know, from from my for me, you know, Trungpa was very different than the Sakyong apparently in that sort of context. Well, I, I think the talking to the individuals involved is a great point, and it just it seems to me like if the individuals involved um, feel good about it, I mean, that goes a long way. Like the the teacher should have enough insight and skill to not be causing harm for someone else, mm-hmm. but, and, and that could be tricky because I could imagine a situation where someone I'm kind of talking about consent to some degree like someone is mm-hmm. it's consensual mm-hmm. in the moment but mm-hmm. then a week mm-hmm. later a month later a year later they they regret it so that that could happen too mm-hmm. yeah um, yeah I think it's also important to note uh, in, in terms of the Sakyong, I, I have a number of friends who are you know considered themselves students of his who uh, and some who um, didn't consider themselves a student but had experienced his teachings you know they were mm-hmm. sort of members you know senior older members of the uh, community, who expressed real appreciation of his teaching and of the practices that he was having them do. You know, again, right. it's this, things are not just black and white again. Maybe they could both be true. He could be a skilled teacher and also... Yeah, there's this other area, yeah. Misconduct happened, yeah. Right, so, I mean, really strong feelings that they have benefited from his teaching and, and the practices he's done. So we don't, you don't have to negate that. Uh, while also not hiding from other yeah. whatever else we know, yeah. that's I think that's a good attitude, and I think that um, you know maybe we put too much emphasis on teachers to fit our ideas of perfection, and then we're disappointed, and it's a shame. I mean, I think nihilism and doubt are like the biggest kind of problems in our minds, and as modern or postmodern people, like it's very hard to believe in something. And it's easy to like look to a scandal to like say, oh, that's just like all the all religion is crap, mm-hmm. or all mm-hmm. spirituality is just uh, mm-hmm. this ego trip with the the leader eventually preying on the devotees, and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a shame because um, I think there is value to it, but there, it's also a caution because those situations do happen. We, we need to have some kind of new understanding of the role of teacher and have some accountability there and not mm-hmm. just give them a, a pass for everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like there's a shift in uh, our relationship to teachers. Right. And I think it could be a healthy, a healthy shift. Right. And the sort of um, guru thing is, is shifting, <laughs> really shifting. I mean, I, I feel very fortunate, uh, you know, at Naropa, my role is, um, you know, I, I teach, you know, I'm academically trained. I went to the University of Virginia, studied with Dr. Jeffrey Hopkins and mm. 
um, you know, did very well in my doctorate program. Um, but I was a practitioner before that and, you know, continued to be. And so teach both as a, you know, academic uh, but also as a practitioner. And it's a situation where you're not trying to be a guru. <laughs> you know? right. yeah, I mean, you're trying to support people's both academic development if they want to go on to a doctorate. You want to train them and you give them the language skills. I teach Tibetan, you know, and this sort of things. And you give them the classics, you know, scholarly perspectives on, on religion and the theory of religions and all, this thi- all these things. But we're also concerned about their personal spiritual development. That that's part of the reason why people choose to come to Naropa, whatever other they we have an MDiv program. If they want to become a chaplain, they want to yeah. they, you know, they had loved ones die of cancer and they want to help people in that case. Or they've had people incarcerated, you know, relatives incarcerated, they want to work in prisons or hospice, you know, whatever it is. They're motivated to do that. They're getting a skill, we're training them to become chaplains. But at the same time, they really want, they're on a spiritual path. That's the basis for becoming a chaplain, and so we provide that. But you don't have to worry about the guru thing. (laughs) You can just, (laughs) you know, be focused on nurturing them and supporting them and and demanding, you know, a certain level of demand of, you know, meeting expectations um, without having to worry about the guru thing. So I feel very fortunate. (laughs) (laughs) Easier easier job. (laughs) Well, I just I kind of want to discuss this whole guru question a little bit more, and I'm just reflecting on my own life, and there's certainly teachers that have had a huge impact on me that I consider, you know, deep spiritual teachers for me, um, you know, and it's and it's mutual, like like Chokinima Rinpoche mm-hmm. and uh, his brother Sokinima Rinpoche and Minga Rinpoche and mm-hmm. his older brother Chokling Rinpoche. Actually, a lot of people haven't seen him, but I got to see him, and he has that quality of presence you're talking about a little mm-hmm. bit, really big, physically mm-hmm. very big guy. Um, and a lot of you know, I've had the fortune to study with a lot of other teachers, but it's in the in the world that we live in. It's like the the model or the idea that you are going to s- search out and find this perfect teacher and throw yourselves at their feet and um, practice the path and and have some realization or enlightenment, and then you're going to be teaching people. And like the the reality is, like these there's a lot of great teachers that are traveling around the world and they're giving a lot of teachings and then you go and you get them and then, but you don't have like a personal relationship with them. There's just a limit on how many personal relationships a person could have. Mm. I think that's part of it. And so for me, it's like you take in the teachings, you practice the best you can. Um, and I can see the teacher everywhere in different people I meet in different situations I'm in different relationships, mm-hmm. but there's, it's not like having someone that I can call up on the phone and ask for advice. 24 7 like mm-hmm. that doesn't exist that's not a realistic expectation i don't know if you can speak to that a little bit like i think mm-hmm. people just have partly and it's partly the, the fault of some of the tradition like the the expectations around what the teacher can be and who, what they can provide for you like don't always match our reality today mm-hmm. there's going to be a few close students and then there's going to be a lot of people that are inspired by them and practice but they're not going to be able to mm-hmm. talk to them anytime they want to well, I think um, teachers vary significantly in um, the quality of um, connection with the sangha that they have. Um, with Trungpa, um, he encouraged a strong sense of community. You know, he would um, he invented a number of holidays, and we we knew of them as invented. There was a, like a sense of humor, like Summer's Day, Midsummer's Day, and um, <clears throat> Shambhala Day, and so forth. Uh, there's a sort of sense of humor as well as enjoying doing it. And um, so there was this real concerted 
uh, effort to have a sense of community. Yeah, he was he was an amazing teacher in that way. Yeah. And he made uniforms and Yeah, he had all sorts of activities you could get involved with, like there was the costume, the uniforms and yeah, amazing. Yeah, which, you know, was um that often consisted of being on a um um you know, having a session where you're you're in a post, you're you're sitting there for like three hours, you know, <laughs> and, and um, you kind know, of sort like of a, like a military kind of so yeah, to speak. overseeing the space and making sure that it's it's past, it's yeah. calm and peaceful and not obstructive. And occasionally there would be some you know really wild person who would appear, and they would you know work with them and move them out of the situation but and and the whole intent was it needed to be you know kind and skillful rather than aggressive macho mm. thing but they had all sorts of slogans and that encouraged a sort of um, gentle but perky and courageous state of mind <laughs> uh but they were actually in effect doing meditation for hours on end you know very just sitting there you know so it was for they were the less you know often they weren't that interested in studies say or Huh. Going off on retreats, but well, if you're on alert, if you're a security guard, so to speak, <laughs> that is a kind of meditation. You're, yeah, you're that, alert. That was definitely the quality of it, and they had these simple khaki uniforms or whatever it was, with a nice little, uh, vivid, brightly colored button, you know, representing their role. Um, but there was flower arranging, and uh, you know, music was created, and songs were created, and. Yeah. Um, all different activities that he got involved with, worked with, you know, psychologists and filmmakers and poets. Right. And and he had all sorts of people in his house. You know, people were in and out of his life all the time. He just created all these ways that people could be around him if they wanted to. And um, that's, that's beautiful. And it's also pretty unusual, I would say. Yeah, that is pretty unusual, yeah. But he was really just relentlessly available, you know. Mm-hmm. Just was, I mean, he would go on retreats and, and, you know, things like that, of course. But yeah. Yeah, so there was a strong sense, but other sanghas are not that, not so much that yeah, way. I guess what I'm speaking to more is the experience of like a teacher comes and does a retreat for a week or two or three mm-hmm, weeks, and you mm-hmm. and you go and you're inspired, and then you kind of return to your regular life and you have your own practice, and mm-hmm. um, that's kind of the model I think a lot of people in America are working with. Right. Well, you know, in the Parinibbana Sutra, um, where the you know the Buddha's dying, you know, <laughs> and. Um, uh, you know, they ask they ask him a number of questions, and um, at one point there's a famous statement. You know, be an island unto yourself that you have to work out your own liberation. Right. You know, it's a sort of a fundamental Buddhist thing. Be a lamp unto yourself. Yeah, be a lamp. And in the Zen tradition, there's this koan. You know, if you see a Buddha, kill him. You know, if right. you, you know, you know, one way to understand that is if you think the Buddha's outside of yourself, that's that's an obstacle to your path that you mm. need to do. And so being separated from the guru is, is, is actually important and you mm. know that you have to figure it out. In the end you have to figure it out yourself. You nice. know, the yeah. the Ananda who was the attendant to the historical Buddha, you know, the Buddha taught for forty five years. He's said to have been enlightened at thirty five, taught for forty five, and for many of those years Ananda was his attendant, had a prodigious memory. Right. And uh, people are becoming arhats, you know, liberated around the Buddha, but not Ananda, the guy who's with the Buddha the most. <laughs> oh, right. yeah, <laughs> doesn't okay. get it doesn't reach liberation during the lifetime of the Buddha. So just being around the teacher isn't it doesn't do it. You know, huh. I mean, it's helpful, of course, it's profoundly helpful, and he was uh, deeply, you know, developed and along the path. But it was only after the Buddha died that they sort of implored him, "Please, you know, we're going to have a council here, and we're going to recite all the sutras, and you know everything, you know, and you know all these texts uh-huh. to recite from." But you need to 
you know, <laughs> get on with it here. So, and he did. <laughs> but isn't the story that he became enlightened, like, was it right before, right after right, the Buddha died? Right be- yeah, well, right before the the, um, the first council oh, where they right. recited all the, the teachings of the Buddha. So anyway, that's a sort of classic story about... No, um, I appreciate that. It's not just about hanging out with the teacher. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, there, there is some benefit for doing that, but... Uh, I mean, in my own case, I felt very close to Trungpa Rinpoche, but I didn't spend a huge amount. I wasn't in the mm. inner circle at all. You know, I'd go to all these programs. I would do some service shifts and, yeah. you know, be around him some. But uh, It's like a spiritual connection you feel. In, oh, you know. it was deep. And you felt the way he talked was he was really talking about your experience. He, he was talking mm. to you. And, huh. um, you know, you really felt he understood what, what we went through and he had himself gone through it. So he was talking from firsthand experience. So there was a real sense of, you know, uh, you can't deny what he said. It just made sense in your own experience. You weren't mm. being talked into anything. You know, it's like, yes, that makes sense. I sort of knew that. I could have never have said it, you know. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> I knew that somehow. <laughs> it's like speaking truth. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that was more the quality of it, yeah. Another question about him that you've probably been asked a million times, but it's his drinking. He was mm-hmm. famous for mm-hmm. drinking mm-hmm. a lot of sake. Mm-hmm. Do you, like, how do you think about that or understand that? Um, as to why he did it, it's, that, that I, it's not clear to me why he did. But um, my experience of him when he would teach and had been drinking was uh, he remained incredibly insightful. It, it really didn't seem to matter that I, I remember some very slow and profound talks um, that he gave. So it was quite interesting uh, that um, his ability to teach and manifest. You know, some people use uh, alcohol or other drugs to yeah. sort of unleash their mental states, their neurotic mental states. It's like an excuse that they use. Right. And others don't oh, I did do that. that. I did that because I was drunk last night. I didn't really mean yeah. that. Yeah, I really didn't mean that. I didn't yeah. mean to punch you in the face. I was drunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas uh, I remember once, uh, this is a, uh, sort of uh, before I started practicing Buddhism, I was uh, living in, uh, oh, I'd, I'd just, I'd been a, a practitioner for a short while. Um, I was in a young, a building with sort of young uh, people starting out, and there was a group, of, an apartment that had people who were trying, learning to be chefs, cooks, and oh, they, yeah. they wanted to have a, a gourmet meal with different courses, and they were going to pair wines with it and so forth. And we were young. <laughs> you know, I was working in a business consulting firm, of all things. Trungpa engaged. I had just finished with the BA in, uh, you know, um, uh, medieval European studies. Oh, wow. I'd studied Latin and church history and oh, philosophy cool. and art and music. I was in a Gregorian chant choir, you know, oh. and I was going to monasteries. This is part of this sort of spiritual journey. I was I was looking for oh, something. Wow. I used to go hang out with Christian monks, and uh, uh, and I got I had to make a living, so I ended up in this consulting firm doing analysis for them because <laughs> <laughs> uh, my roommates were working there. I just they were other Buddhists, uh, younger Buddhists, and uh-huh. um, so they got me a job there and. Uh, <laughs> Um, oh, how did I get into this? Sorry. They were drinking. Oh, yes, yes. So anyway, <laughs> that was the context. Um, 
so they, they, they invited a group of us to, as their sort of victims, if you will. You know, they're trying out to cook these dishes. But, I mean, it was very well done. Victim's not the right word, but we were, they were experimenting. And so we, we were drinking like six different bottles of wine, and there were multiple bottles. And it was very interesting because the whole atmosphere is you're really paying attention to the food. I, I like to cook. Mm. I, I love, like, yeah. India. I like to cook Indian curries and, you know, biryani I mean, and such. Um, and there was this quality that you were really paying attention to each dish, and there would be inner, inner, inner course dishes to little like, tiny like things. Like a mindfulness, right? Yeah. It was a very mindful thing. And meanwhile, they keep serving you wine, and and it was a very sort of clear, you know, present, alert, uh, you know, perceptive state of mind. It's very interesting to to have done that with this intentional attitude of really appreciating the food and the wine, you know. Mm. So it, it, it's like the exact opposite of the guy unleashing your neurosis, that you, you can drink in a way that's quite mindful and um, is not harmful. So that's generally my experience of drinking. I, I don't feel much of a shift, <laughs> you know, in my basic state of mind. When, yeah. you know, I've been, and I've learned, you know, that that's entirely possible. That's cool. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I, I did a um, drinking practice with Reggie Ray uh-huh. at the end of one a long retreat. Um, it's like a month-long retreat in the winter. And at the end, he led that. As part of a celebration, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was really profound, and it was yeah mm-hmm. very mindful and slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we did drink a large amount, and it definitely was altered. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But a totally different experience than than the normal bar scene. How do you how do you understand this like in relationship with other drugs and substances? And do you think it as a Buddhist, if someone wants to be a meditator, can that be a personal choice they make? I mean, mm-hmm. traditionally in Buddhism, mm-hmm. there's a precept that to not take intoxicants. Mm-hmm. It's like the five precepts and. But I've had it explained to me that the reason that precept is there is because getting drunk or take or becoming intoxicated can cause you to commit non-virtuous actions. So if you can take a drink and not become heedless, then you would not be violating that. Right. So of the different precepts, you know, not killing, not stealing, not lying, right. not engaging in sexual misconduct and right. so forth. Um, the not taking intoxicants is sort of in a different category. The others are intrinsically, you know, it is viewed as um, uh, more basically non-virtuous, like to kill someone. And there killing, are th- stealing, yeah. Right. I mean, there are, again, in a nuanced discussion, there's, there, there are exceptions. You know, mm. like if someone's going to set off, you know, Trungpa once said, if someone were going to set off an atomic bomb and the only way to stop them was to kill them, right. you know, it's not your choice, not your preference, but if right. that was the thing to do, then uh, it would be a good thing to do. Right. It, it not only saves the, the th- thousands of lives of the people who would be hurt, but also prevents the person from causing such a negative action. So even the thing like do not kill, there's some uh, nuance to that. But in general speaking, again, it's a good rule. You know? right. Right. Um, so drinking, though, is considered not to be intrinsically negative or more um, uniformly negative. It's very much about it tends to create conditions in which you will do the other non-virtues. It's like the guy using his drunkenness right. to unleash his anger. He just right. has a lot of anger and he just uses an excuse to let it out. Um, so, you know... Going with the the odds here, they say, well, just Better you can take a yeah, you can take a precept not to do it. Now the precepts are uh, optional. You know, there you, you I mean, as a lay Buddhist, you can choose not to take the drinking one. Right. As a monk, you you do take it. You have to. But as a lay person, you can you know say, I will not kill. I will not steal. You know, those sort of things, and not take the. So that's up to you. That's a, yeah. I guess the other 
piece to this puzzle for me is like I've seen drinking is more accepted like in the Shambhala community mm -hmm. it's more accepted but something like cannabis use seems more taboo and I think that maybe keeps some people away from some mm -hmm. Buddhist communities or it just seems like Mm -hmm. If you're okay with drinking, why wouldn't you be okay with cannabis? Like that feels like a contradiction for some people. Mm -hmm. and, um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Or just even going beyond that, there's so many different substances. And then we start talking about prescription medications and mm -hmm. Adderall mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. coffee. And I mean, where do we draw right. the line? Or Yeah, one example of this discussion, um, this happens in the chaplaincy, in the MDiv um, you know, uh, world that you're dealing with patients who are dying, <laughs> and um, the question of how much painkiller, you know, if it's a um, like morphine, you know, if you can't stop this, they're going to die, and how much painkiller do you give? And I, I've heard, um, you know, uh, students talking back about decisions that individual patients have made, and that, uh, you know, I've heard a recurring theme that there are Buddhists who dial back, who, who don't refuse to take um, medication like morphine, mm. uh, but would rather have more mental clarity uh, and uh, some more pain than being doled out and not being aware. Right, at the moment of death. At the moment of yeah, death in absolutely. particular. Yeah. That it's, it's generally said that your state of mind at the moment of death affects your rebirth. You know, there's right. a, a wide uh, differences of views of how Westerns um, relate to the teaching of rebirth and right. this stuff. But um, for uh, the, the classic view is that your, your state of mind at the end of death really affects your rebirth and that therefore being clear and aware uh, and settled and peaceful and not dulled out it would be a good thing. Um, I was with my father in the process of his dying. Um, mm -hmm. For six months, I, I was able to live with him and support him and my mother. And his, when he was in the final process of dying, there was a sort of luminous, uh, relaxed, you know, sort of acceptance and just a wonderful quality of caring from him and around him. It was just naturally occurring. You know, he was, uh, you say, a nominally a Christian, you know, that he did, you know, support the idea of Christianity, but it wasn't a, a deep thing that he practiced or talked about. But um, he really had that luminous, peaceful, calm state of mind. It was really wonderful being with him. Oh, wow. um, and so that's, that's understood as being very beneficial to to have that state of mind. And of course, it can happen in any tradition, you know, that any person has really uh, led their life in a way that helps nurture such a, such a state of mind, it yeah. can happen in anywhere, yeah. so. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. So that then gets back to the issue of drugs and, and not sort of muddying the water too much. <laughs> right, the, the issue being that reducing clarity, reducing uh, mm -hmm. presence, reducing mm -hmm. your sensitivity. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, but generally they'll take some. It's not a not a black and white thing again. It's like, you know, yeah. they have to figure out where they want the balance to fall. I just, I just feel like, um, speaking more generally, not talking about the dying process, it's a real personal choice for people. And some people are on, you know, antidepressants, for example. And if that's helping them, then I think mm -hmm. that's great. And some people... Um, I think like something like cannabis affects different people very differently. And for some people that is how they function in a compassionate, helpful way in the world. And it's not diminishing their quality of their life. Mm -hmm. So I think that's being mm -hmm. recognized more in society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe for someone it's like a glass of wine at the end of the night and that's an okay thing for them. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just, I'm just trying to find this like middle way where mm -hmm. without the black or white thinking and without, I don't know, I just, I've just experienced some 
real taboo and shaming in some Buddhist circles because mm -hmm. the ideal is that you would be completely clear and present and not using anything to dilute your experience. Mm -hmm. But the reality is we have stressful, modern, fast-paced lives mm -hmm. and we do use substances all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know, there's just different ways I can think about it. But mm. no, it just also seems that a lot of the options available to us today were not available 500 years ago in Tibet. And so it's just a different world we're in. I think it's like, I, like for example, I take a multivitamin but, multivitamin, but I also take um, like a dietary supplement that helps like with mental clarity and memory and mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's completely safe and legal and it's been tested, but it's, it has things like, you know, fish liver oil in it and different like B vitamins and, you know, stuff mm -hmm. like that just wasn't around like in mm -hmm. the past. And I think there's going to be more and more developments like that. It's mm -hmm. uh, interesting. Yeah. <coughs> well, I mean, there's a general um, orientation of trying to reduce suffering for all beings right. in the Buddhist tradition. And um, from that point of view, taking supplements, taking you know some drugs could, if they reduce suffering, again, there's no intrinsic problem right. with that. Um, so there, the, these things could be abused, you know, right. depending upon the particular drug. So right. that needs to be avoided, and and there's abuse, and you know, can involve addictive states of mind, and right. you know, really problematic, painful, harmful states of mind. So you have to use the middle way, as you said. That's, yeah. You know, cool. yeah. So I don't think there's any intrinsic Buddhist opposition to such things. No, if it reduces suffering and it's not causing you harm, there can be some side effects. You know, yeah. And th you have to be mindful of those and minimize those and be cautious about that. But well, there would be no problem. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that's one thing that attracted me to Buddhist teachings originally is like this emphasis on um, reducing suffering, you know, increasing well-being and, and being mm. very practical mm. rather than having black and white thinking rather than having an internal heaven and an internal hell and you know all that kind of stuff that's like it's too heavy it's too much and you know we're all humans we're all doing the best we can do so <laughs> i mean i i remember growing up in the i grew up in the bible belt and i remember hearing about christianity from classmates and i went to church a few times and just the idea that you were going to be eternally damned or eternally saved um i never agreed with that i remember being like five six years old and like thinking about that and how I just I wouldn't wish that on anyone. I wouldn't want to wish someone to be in hell mm -hmm. forever mm -hmm. because they don't say the right words or believe the right thing. It just made no sense to me. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, from a Buddhist point of view, there are hellish states that people get themselves into, right. and uh, but also quite the opposite. You know, very um, compassionate, skillful, insightful states are possible. Yeah. Um, so the, the Buddhism talks about it more as the temporary state you've gotten yourself into. It could last a long time. <laughs> it could last a long time, right? And we can see this in our own lives. You know, you can see periods, you know, classically it's it's stretched over eons. You know, you keep getting reborn in different <laughs> ones and you can be to hell realm for a while. Um, but even within the current life, we can even see this happening. There can be, we look back on our lives and there could be periods where um, your mental state was really quite painful and you were unskillful and... Um, and then it shifted and changed, and there were aspects that you came to view as very problematic, and somehow you figured out how to shed them. And uh, so we have this malleability. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think one of the gifts from the Buddhist traditions that's infiltrating our culture is this understanding of suffering. That, for example, suffering is resisting what is, what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing that more and more in like mindfulness and psychology, and mm -hmm. that you can be in physical pain, but you don't have to suffer about it. Mm -hmm. You can even go through a difficult experience like a breakup, and yes, there is suffering, but then 
you move through it in such a way that you're better at the other end. Mm -hmm. Like that mm -hmm. kind of understanding. Yeah, there's this uh, beautiful sutra in the Theravadan tradition, the Two Darts Sutra, mm. in which the first dart is the basic suffering of the situation. Right. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> um, you know, somebody, um, uh, uh, or you, you can even be self-inflicted. You, you're riding a bike and you're thinking about something and you're all preoccupied, maybe upset about something and not watching the road and you have a crash you yeah. know, and you really yeah. skin your elbow or whatever and it hurts. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first dart that uh, <laughs> you've got some suffering going on. And then you start thinking about it. You know, you start uh, interpreting that. Like you start yeah. blaming the person that you were angry at. Or blaming yourself. Or blaming yourself, whatever it is, yeah. Uh, that you start adding all sorts of additional emotional suffering on top of the basic suffering. So that we do yeah. this all the time. We inflame our situation by yeah. throwing the second dart at ourselves. <laughs> oh, that's a great. That's a great example. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And we, mm -hmm. yeah, we tend to do it to ourselves. Like something ha happens, you show up late to something, and then instead of like, okay, next time I'll be on time, it's like, oh, I'm such a terrible person. I'm mm -hmm. always late. I'm a worthless piece of crap. And like all this mm -hmm. self, we have so much self negativity going on. Mm -hmm. And I think mindfulness and meditation can really help uh, release that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the roles of meditation is you. Uh, it provides this open, non-judgmental space to see yeah. what's happening, and what's happening is often judgmental <laughs> stuff. <laughs> so, so this is sort of funny humor that you're, you're developing this ability to be non-judgmental about your own judgmentalness. I mean, that's, right. the only way forward is to work with that judgmentalness, to acknowledge it, to understand how it happens, to realize that you don't have to do that. And this, right. so there's this also a kindness to that. So normally there's a harshness to the self-judgmentalness. Yeah. So you can learn, oh, I don't have to do that to myself. I could be kind to myself. You don't, don't have to beat yourself up. Well, now that means you have to do something, like stop procrastinating, stop being late. Uh, I mean, you have to change yeah. your conduct. Right. You know, put your effort into that, not into criticizing right. yourself. Yeah. It's more useful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say something, I forgot what it was. Um. <laughs> but yeah, reducing suffering, that's, what it's, that's the goal. I mean, the, the happiness that we can find is like underneath that suffering mm -hmm. or within it even. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, suffering's not considered an enemy in a way. There's this sort of, uh, there's a lot of wisdom to be learned from your suffering. Oh, yeah. You're suffering for a reason. <laughs> I just remember yeah. I think that's really important that we not just try to, we want to reduce suffering, but we don't want to just get rid of it because there's some message there. There's mm -hmm. some information mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. If you're suffering, there's some reason. But then what can happen is, um, like John Kabat-Zinn bringing mindfulness in the hospitals and to reduce mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. suffering of people in chronic pain because what can happen is, you know, if you reach out and touch a hot stove, there's pain, and that pain has the information, don't touch a hot object. But if you're in a chronic pain situation, there's not really any benefit to just feeling it pain all the time. And I think the same thing happens with psycho in our psychological world. Like, something negative, something difficult happened, there's a reason why you feel suffering about it, but then at some point that becomes un unhelpful and necessary. Just It's like mm -hmm. a thought loop that keeps repeating over and over. Mm -hmm. Well, often what we try to do to relieve the suffering has nothing related to the cause of the suffering. Uh, you know, it's like if you're feeling uh, bad about yourself, down about yourself, say you didn't get a job you were hoping to get or you didn't get the, the pr a promotion or, you know, you were hoping to be able to afford a new apartment and you can't or whatever it is that's going on and you get, you're sort of bummed out. Um, or you have a lot of negative mental states, you know, you're, you're angry a lot or whatever it is. 
So you, what do you do to feel better about yourself? So, you know, you might like go buy something, you know, you go right. download some music or buy some shoes or get a new you, shirt a or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 more fries. You know. uh, but that has nothing to do with helping the situation. Right. You know, this is right. often what we do to feel better about ourselves often are completely unrelated to the cause of suffering and are absolutely not going to do anything to help help the situation. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's a good point. So you have to actually have the courage to face those states of mind. If you're feeling jealousy, to actually acknowledge them. Instead of talking to someone, bad-mouthing the person who has the thing, the achievement or whatever you wanted, you know, mm-hmm. you have to relate to that state of mind and... How yeah. can you not do that? Yeah. So it takes a lot of courage to face that and try to figure a lot of insight, try to figure out how to yeah. change your patterns, your your actions. Face your face your life and see it clearly and make some changes. And then for me, something that's really been helpful is the going back to the teachings on no self. Mm-hmm. So if I show up late and then I'm beating myself up for showing up late, if I can see that all the causes and conditions, if I can release that that self-identity that's mm-hmm. supposed to be perfect and that's mm-hmm. not perfect and then I feel bad because I'm not perfect you know if you can release that mm-hmm. that self and like also that you're that it's going to change like maybe mm-hmm. maybe you've been late your whole life but maybe today's a new day and you'll be on time from now on mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that's possible too mm-hmm. just as an example yeah well I think a lot of people have experiences and it may be sort of dramatic moments in their life where they relinquish um, an identity that right. they had before right. And it's a very sort of daunting thing, yeah. but it's a very creative, positive thing often that there are reasons why, you know, there was some dis- dysfunctionality to that identity, a group of people you were with and the sort of world you were creating together and, and you decide to change. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it takes this courage and you don't know what the future is. It sort of produces this groundless, uncertain openness. What, what do you say to the idea of having a healthy sense of self. Mm-hmm. It's like some Buddhist teachers or teachings are interpreted as like no self. Um, but I've really come on to mm-hmm. the side of like, there's no self in the sense of it's it can change, it's not permanent, it's, it's connected with everything, so it's not somehow independent or separate, and it's made up of many parts. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a healthy sense of self functioning in the world. I'm relating to you, I'm a man, you know, you're a man, or you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. These mm-hmm. kinds of relative conventional identities that are useful and, and healthy and then but also not fully who I am mm-hmm. well one way to talk about this is back to this issue of the concepts and the relationship to the reference object you know mm. if you say I have a self what what you know I have a healthy self or a healthy sense of self you know what's the reference object what's okay. the actual <laughs> qualities that we're talking about and again I would suggest that it, that it, that emerges when there's this the dynamic open, you know, courageous presence that's not trying to create a fabricated security. Right. The and language is interesting there. It's not quite satisfying when you say that, and then I'm like, ah, oh, healthy sense of self doesn't quite fit it. <laughs> yeah. Because what is that referring to? Yeah, I mean, yeah, what's the reference object? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's a more dynamic way of being. Well, maybe it's just the absence of a lot of self-negativity or a lot of self-pride. Like mm-hmm, just the mm-hmm. absence of that, then you're present, mm-hmm. and I respond to the situation, and there's positive qualities, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's not like a grasping that this is who I am. Right. There's this sort of um, 
there's no sort of person behind the scenes. It's like you can have someone who is uh, very um, consistent in being uh, generous to others, mm. um, not aggressive, and so forth. But you can have this sense that there's there's someone behind that watching it and feeling proud about it. Uh. They're, they're sort of clinging to this idea that I'm going to be a virtuous person, and there's a sort of implication. Well. You have some fear that you're not. There's this sort of. Right. There's a sort of. It can feel kind of fake. Fake, yeah. yeah, yeah. This sort of fake smile, sort of thing. And they're not aggressive. They're not yelling at people. Or at least not overtly aggressive. You know, they can right. be passive aggressive. But um, well, that's a spiritual a trap of the spiritual path. You want to be a better person. And yeah. And spiritual materialism is another way to talk about this. Right. That you're you're trying to mimic spirituality, uh, but there's an underlying neurotic thing going on that's trying to turn that into something to build up ego. Yeah, well that's subtle, but yeah, yeah. for sure. And they're subtler and subtle levels. I mean, even just saying spiritual materialism, you could be spiritual materialistic about you know to say, talk about <laughs> it. You know? It's a very subtle thing. Yeah. And there are levels of working with that. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I've, I have been impressed by some teachers that I'll see where they'll interact, like someone asks a question and it's clear that the person asking the question is very intelligent and um, knows a lot and knows what they're talking about. And the teacher is able to not be defensive. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't become a debate like you know more than me, but it's like, oh, I appreciate your knowledge. Thanks for sharing. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Like, yeah, definitely. Well, when you teach, you, you, you will always hit points where there's something that you don't know that the student might know or whatever it is. Right. So there's always this quality of uh, just being open and appreciative and right. not, not being defensive or you yeah. know, all that stuff. It's really important. Beautiful. Any other last thoughts? I really appreciate you coming and being here. Sure, sure. Um, I don't know, this just came to mind. Um, I'll just say it is, I don't know, it does connect to what we're, some of the stuff we are talking about before. Is, um, there's a, uh, a teaching on what's called the two marks, um, the mm. mark of study, the, or the mark of practice or meditation, and the mark of study. Mm. And um, the mark of uh, meditation is is uh, not a surprise. You know, it's like a, a, a settled mental state. You know that there's fewer afflicted mental states that you've really tamed your mind. You've worked with it to tame. It's like so, a calm, mm -hmm, peaceful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so, a person who's really engaged in a lot of meditation will begin to show this quality. Mm. So, what's the mark of, of study of having done extended, extensive study? Now, it's said to be gentleness and humbleness. Oh, nice. In our society, like if you go to law school or business school or doctor or whatever, this is like you, you've got a, a license to be arrogant, to, you know, right. <laughs> be the aggressive or whatever it yeah. is. Um, a lot of pride, uh, arrogance, and all sorts of problems can happen around that. Um, so here, though, the idea is that if you really are studying something that's meaningful, that should make you a better person. So being very learned should actually make you more skillful, more, uh, you know, one of the things um, that uh, took a, a while for me to understand was that you can learn, you can know something um, much um, easier than you can actually embody it. We were talking about mm. this earlier, like you can learn about jealousy is a painful thing and right. I want to stop doing it. But actually changing that right. is a much harder task. And um, having insight into another person, 
happens before developing skillfulness and using that insight. Yeah, that's <laughs> you true. Know, you know, the, <laughs> we often have insight and then we just make a mess of it. You know, well, yeah. you, you well, we often see things about other people we don't see about ourselves. Right, right. And yeah. we don't use that intelligence on ourselves. So it turns out developing skillful means it takes a lot more effort than mm-hmm. developing insight. Insight is fundamental. You know, you yeah, I think that's a great that. point. Yeah. Yeah. But then learning how to use that to be a benefit is a, a very, uh, takes a, a longer, much longer time yeah yeah and so this process of you know engaging in study should make you a better human you know make you mm. kinder you know you're more insightful you right. you know more attuned to how you could turn your insight into arrogance you know you, you learn about <laughs> your own self-deception and uh, spiritual materialism right. and and so to actually help others uh, this process of study and practice um <clears throat> Yeah, in the in the Buddhist tradition, they talk about the three trainings. The Buddhist path consists of the mm. three trainings. Uh, it's also the Eightfold Noble Path is another way of describing right. the eight, the Buddhist path. And it turns out the Eightfold Noble Path is divided into the three trainings, so that they're they're just different ways of talking about mm. the same thing. But the but the three are uh, in Sanskrit: uh, Shila, Samadhi, and Prajna. Shila mm. being conduct, you know, virtuous conduct, and working with your non-virtuous activity, your daily life. So your daily life is definitely a deep part of the path it's not just the meditation which is the second the samadhi so meditation is considered crucial in the buddhist tradition um, but not sufficient you know that you still have to get up from the cushion you know some people uh are may still can make a mess of their life even though they're meditating a lot you know that they have to really integrate those two and uh, so your your life you might view as messy but it's really this powerful mirror what your actual state of mind is you know if you think you've got real mm. calm and so forth well go deal with that arrogant abusive boss you know right. <laughs> that'll show you where your mind is at you know um, so uh the meditation is considered really crucial but it's only you know a part of the path and then the third is pragna pragna developing insider wisdom and that includes study and uh, there's said to be three prajnas, three prajnas, uh, hearing, contemplating, and meditating. You know, hearing is uh, you learn about the teachings, you hear someone talk or you read books, and right. contemplating, you actually engage it, you ponder it, you analyze it, you compare it to your experience. Does it make sense? You know, does it really connect to what your experience of life is? And then the third level of uh, the prajna of meditation is where you deeply embody it. You know that you—it's you, not a matter of conceptually assenting to something, but uh, you actually embody it. And, and of course, meditation is a, is a, is a way in which you learn to settle the mind and be in this way. And but then you arise from the cushion, and then it starts manifesting. So, right. yeah. So yeah, these these are the three major components. And again, the eight noble path. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate you those. sharing that. Morality or ethical conduct, and the wisdom, as well as the meditation. Mm-hmm. And so often, when in discussions of mindfulness, you know, it's just about non-judgmental awareness, and we we don't have mm-hmm. missing in the discussion is uh, wisdom and insight and compassion and ethical conduct, mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And really Buddhist important. traditions differ in where they put the emphasis. Right. You know, in the Tibetan tradition, there's. Um, a stronger tradition of um, study, you know, the intellectual study. It's not that all Buddhist practitioners, you know, go to the monastic university, absolutely not, but it's a very strong aspect of the tradition. Uh, there's some humor in the Zen tradition, of course, there's the famous, you know, burn the scriptures, you know, this. Kill the religion. Buddha. Yeah, kill the Buddha. But uh, at the same time, it's got the most vast literature of any East Asian tradition. There's a sort of humor here that they're, they're, it's a very. More, uh, more than Tibetan? 
uh, well, I don't know the answer to that question, but in terms of East Asian traditions oh, okay. of the different schools and so forth, that Zen has a vast <laughs> quantity of literature. So. It, it kind of makes me think of a punk rock, and it's like kind of giving the middle finger to the mainstream, but then it becomes the mainstream. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. then there's so many books about Zen that it's, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. but originally yeah. kind of started as like kind of a rebellion, right? Like, right. Well, the tone of the writing of the Zen writer is often rebellious. Like, yeah. you know, this, uh, the interpretation of koans, you could well subvert your teacher's interpretation. Right. But, but then it's like, uh, you know, rabbis arguing about the interpretation of the Torah. You know, it's a very <laughs> learned tradition from some point of view. Right. Even though it's being used in this, you know, so this, this, it's got this radical undercutting tone where it's, it's really trying to, you know, push you, you know, to aid your direct experience. Right. But still, it's got a lot of literature. <laughs> <laughs> while, while rejecting literature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Slow humor is good. Nice. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Sure, thank you. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at A State of Mind. Come to our website at stateofmindplay.com. Send us a message. Let us know what you think. And if you would like to support this podcast, please visit our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash a state of mind. And if you'd like to learn more about my work as a therapist, coach, meditation teacher, and speaker, check out julianocean.us. Thank you so much, and I will see you here next time.